Welcome to the Restore Body Balance podcast. I'm Colleen Burns, licensed psychotherapist and founder of Restore Body Balance, where we combine psychology, biology, and neurology to enact life changes that stick. And I'm Nico Yatanis, co-producer of this podcast, and I'm going to be asking Colleen some questions on today's topic. Today's topic is when to trust your gut, what you know and don't know about intuition. So to start, why are gut feelings called gut feelings? I know when I get a gut feeling, it feels almost like it's coming from inside of my gut area. Well, Nico, there is a reason why gut feelings have a name. The gut is also referred to as the second brain. There is a clear connection between your brain and the gastrointestinal tract, the gut-brain axis. The primary part of this is the vagus nerve that connects your brain to the GI tract, and it's bi-directional. Thus, our emotional state can alter our GI tract and vice versa. We learned this at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition when I was taking the gut health course. There was a renowned army surgeon by the name of William Beaumont, and in the 1830s, he took care of a patient who literally had an open hole in his stomach due to a gunshot wound. Beaumont was able to see into the patient's stomach lining, and he noticed when there was a link between his changing mood and his GI secretions. And as we mentioned in our immune system and the food for mood episode, this second brain is also the third nervous system that's called the enteric nervous system. And it's made out of more than 1 million nerve cells that line your GI tract. And although its main job is to help you digest food, it also communicates regularly with the big brain in your head through neurotransmitters that are just chemicals that normally are released by nerves. And most of these originate in your gut. So I guess we are learning that gut feelings really do exist. So is it safe to assume we should trust these gut feelings? As a therapist, I believe most of our behavior happens automatically, guided by genetics and habit rather than conscious deliberation. Intuition also drives our decision-making and we have to factor in insight and first impressions. We are a culmination of our life's experiences, as I often say to my clients. So when looking at gut feelings of one person's stress, that might be another person's adrenaline rush. That reminds me of technology. I know I get excited when I find a new app or get a new phone. It's actually on my bucket list to be in line for the new iPhone on the day of release. But my excitement stems from my knowledge and understanding based on a foundation of experience and education. But tell someone who doesn't understand technology that it's time for a new iPhone and it becomes a source of stress for them, where they won't understand the new way the phone works. So that said, are gut feelings also intuition? Well, let me refer back to the iPhone. I am one of those people that when I get a new phone, I actually get stressed out. Um, so that's a whole nother podcast. But yes, intuition is almost like driving a stick shift if you've ever had a five speed. You just kind of feel when it's time to shift gears. But there's also something called a reaction formation. 
And in psychological terms, a reaction formation fires at a nanosecond, which I believe is one billionth of a second. And you can't snap your fingers in one billionth of a second. So think about a reaction formation that's bubbling up inside of you when we are listening or feeling with our hearts and not our heads. Not to mention receiving a text message or the Zoom meetings we referenced in our last podcast. It's getting that feedback or smile or touch that can actually change a first impression dramatically. Or like your use of the laugh out loud, LOL, and emojis at the end of the text. Yeah, exactly. To qualify that the text is actually amicable. Exactly. So once intuition hits, so to speak, then we cling to it. So whether it's real danger or a perceived threat, we tend to hang on to it. Then harken back to what we referenced in cognitive behavioral therapy, which was the episode we did the A, B, C, D, E. Sometimes we are biased to our gut feelings as well. These could be in the forms of dreams, hopes, and expectations. Then take something that we call a hunch. Maybe you have a dream of a plane crash and then you end up canceling your flight the next day. Or we recapitulate our reactions over and over and over again. You know, Nico, you're a recent graduate. A poll of students were asked when they were taking a test, if they reconsidered an answer, they said invariably their initial choice was correct. That's true. Almost every time I second guessed on an exam, it ended up being wrong and my initial choice was the correct option. I guess it plays into overthinking also. I don't know if any of you listening are familiar with the movie The Polar Express, but the scene comes to mind where the main character asks the girl repeatedly, are you sure? And then she turns around and hesitates and always second guesses things throughout the whole movie that she already knew were right. And then at the end of the movie, they all get their tickets stamped with advice and she gets the ticket that says lead. Wow, what a wonderful analogy. In my opinion, intuition is and makes you feel confident in your idea or plan. Hence your reference to the Polar Express. For example, I don't know about you, but sometimes somebody might say, I don't know, I just can't trust this person. I can't tell you why, I just don't. And even if we are wrong, we usually stick to that gut feeling even if it's in the form of a superstition. That person is always me. I always swear by my first impressions, and my friends have begun to, too. There have been times where I felt something was inherently wrong when meeting certain people, yet it was an unexplainable gut feeling. I would share that feeling afterward with my closest friends that something just felt off. Sometimes I would have a reasoning, other times I didn't. But usually, my friends ended up saying, how did you know that from the beginning? That's right. And Nico, when you and I first met, it was absolutely in my gut, like, this is going to be awesome. Like, we just immediately gelled and had the same vision. So I'm a gut person, too. Then take something like intuition, right? Intuition often triggers an emotion, like knocking on wood Friday the 13th or a black cat crossing in front of you. So the intuition triggers emotion, which then sometimes triggers a behavior. 
Exactly. For some, knocking on wood instantly mitigates whatever concern someone may have. Sometimes if I'm stressed, I'll just say, oh, knock on wood, and then I'll knock on wood and just forget about it. So why does this happen, or can intuition be improved? To improve odds at most things, they need to be repeated, right? That's linking events to outcomes. So take economics or our current climate right now that we've likened to the Spanish flu of, I believe, 1918, or even looking to other countries and forecasting our own fate here in the U.S. That also taps into someone's expertise, though, right? Like a weather forecaster or scientist, and that's a reliable expertise, or in my profession, it's a bit blurred because it's not like medicine, but I generally go with my gut with things. So it also factors in the longer you have done something or we've habituated something, the more proficient you become at it. And sometimes, like we've said, that's really great. And sometimes it's a maladaptive behavior. Yeah, as they say, practice makes perfect. So it's like what we talked about last week. We tend to catalog or file away our most stimulating experiences, both the good and the bad. That is correct, Nico. The more excitatory the event or the experience, the stronger the memory. I often tell clients that one pain is generalized to all pain. So take here in Boston, where my office is located, we have the C train going up Beacon Street, and there's just two cars by and large. And so if there's a crash or one car derails, you might feel the impact of that one other car. I say to my clients, sometimes the event or experience is like the Acela train going 200 miles an hour and boom, 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 boom. You feel the crash of a hundred cars. That's the pain that we feel over and over again across a lifetime. And so that likens back to a gut feeling. So it may or may not be real, but if we've experienced it before, like the rug getting pulled out from underneath us, we're going to file that away because stimulating experiences or excitatory experiences could be unpleasant and bad. So the brain says, I'll remember that so it doesn't happen again. Or it could be quite pleasant and good, which we also like. So we remember it. So let's say you have an unpleasant event that happened last fall. You will start to actually become anxious in August because our senses will automatically hone in on that change, right? The leaves start turning, the daylight is diminishing. That's so interesting. And looking back on it, it helps me understand why I felt anxious during certain times. So can we actually build good intuitions and bad ones? Well, in my opinion, yes, in a way, but it's often complicated, right? So you can be a great baseball player guessing the next pitch, but that doesn't mean you're a great car driver. So if you have an unpleasant memory or event, we can retrain our brains to calm that excitatory neuron down over time, and that makes it less stimulating, thus lower your memory banks. So often with therapy, I'll say it's not an exact science, but when we experience an unpleasant event or feelings in the comfort and support of another person, 
they're just held differently for that person, right? And so it's almost like weaving into a blanket. And eventually, if you could envision my fingers going, you know, a buck 50, like tentacles on an octopus, all of a sudden, those excitatory neurons just sort of lose their luster, or it's almost like putting a blanket over them gently, and they just become less excited. And therefore, the memory doesn't need to be filed away. That's really great. So intuition or our gut feelings are also like having insight? I think insight is linked closer to logic or intelligence, looking at a solution, where intuition is more of a sensory thing, and then we act on it. Kind of like a hunch? <laughs> yes. Actually, I'm laughing because I just watched the newest episode of Star Trek and Captain James T. Kirk is trying to educate Spock on his quote-unquote hunch. And as anyone that follows Star Trek knows, Spock follows logic. <laughs> That's a great example. Or those crime shows like Castle where the main character has a hunch of who the killer is based on his experience as a novelist. And he follows the trail to look for evidence. That's right. And then go back and, you know, take our fight and flight analogy that we often reference. Your body literally pushes you to run or defend, right? The blood goes to your feet to flee or your fist to fight. So here, if you were to deliberately think about choices of what to do, it would not be beneficial in terms of keeping you out of danger. But also we reference that into the past, right? So again, you see the more stimulating the experience, the more the brain will remember and catalog it. So intuition is not helping the brain when it thinks it's saving our lives, right? So that's also what we call stress. And it's these quick reflexes or thought patterns that keep us stuck at the same time. And we sometimes get stuck with unwanted thoughts and behavior. Like I often say, you know, putting it in the habituator and running a mini lifetime movie series in our head, right? Or take our habits, good and bad, want it and those that are not desired. It's basically just taking a shortcut when we're in that fight or flight response. And then we tend to habituate it over and over and over. And that keeps us stuck. And for some of us, it keeps us on track. So stress and anxiety tend to blur some intuition while being sad tends to slow things down. And we tend to think more analytically, thus perhaps use our intuition differently. That makes sense. I'm thinking back to our last podcast where we discussed our social distancing and what we are missing in Zoom meetings or by wearing masks. I'm sure that factors into our gut feelings and intuition. Absolutely. It's like reading people. Are they approachable and friendly or stern and intimidating? If a big, strong, burly person approaches you but then smiles, it changes how we perceive them. But that doesn't necessarily hold back when we have snap judgments. So take online dating or your reference to text messages. There's a lot of assumptions, but also our gut feelings, right? Like, for example, when I have a consultation with somebody, I start off on the phone, then we meet in person, and I always conclude with, now it's a matter of your feeling, whether you 
trust me enough or you want to try for a, a few sessions. And I always say I have very broad shoulders. Maybe your friend like me, but you may not. So it's also about the alliance in my field, right? So getting to know somebody and then trusting them enough to share intimate details and maybe at times become vulnerable. And that has to do with your gut. Maybe I remind them of somebody that could be a good memory or not so good memory. Or when their friend referred them to me, again, the friend might have had a good experience, but if this person likens me to somebody in their past that wasn't so pleasant, it's a gut feeling and it probably is not going to work out. So a great deal is up for interpretation, like using LOL as a period in text that we mentioned last week. I actually started doing that because people were misinterpreting my texts when I didn't use emojis. So interpretation is key. Yes, and to think that our fates are left to the whim of an emoji. (laughs) (laughs) So now that we've discussed gut feelings in terms of psychology, what about biology? Yay, you know me, I geek out and I love talking about this. So let's look at our gut. I mean, our actual microbiome. Here we look at the idea that the mind and body are one. So let's say you sense danger. So as we've often said, that amygdala, that little almond-shaped nugget in the middle of your brain, is the one that sets off the fire alarm, right? But we just don't know if the house is burning down or if we burn the toast. It's the same thing with our vagus nerve that we referenced earlier in the podcast. It's a cranial nerve that extends from the brain to the bowels and then back again. And it branches out and it connects with other major organs through nerve endings, like the chest and the abdomen. It's very powerful. And the vagus nerve, the term vagus, came from the Latin root for wanderer or vagabond, because all of those little nerve endings actually wander throughout the body. So when stressed our gut becomes inflamed to ward off possible pathogens. It does this because when we're stressed, our immune system is suppressed and inflammation is the secondary line of defense. Much like cortisol, we've often referenced to, the vagus nerve also talks to the gut. Then when all is deemed okay, everything's okay, the brain sends a message to the gut with a neurotransmitter called GABA. That is our main inhibitory neurotransmitter. And there is a decrease in the release of those pro-inflammatory cytokines and also inflammation. Then there's also acetylcholine, which is released to stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system. But as I said, I get excited about this stuff, so I'll stop there. It certainly is fascinating, and as you say in your book, you can either stress or digest. Can you say more about the vagus nerve? I know you mentioned triggering it during breathing exercises to get into the relaxation response and how it relates back to our gut feelings. Yes, Nico, the vagus nerve plays an important role in stress regulation as we know. It informs the body on how to respond to stress. Also, how the body transfers back and forth from the wonderful sympathetic of fight or flight and the parasympathetic of rest and restore of those two nervous systems. 
i.e. the fight or flight and rest and digest. So our gut conditions are often associated with anxiety and depression and other mood disturbances, which is why we did the podcast on food equals mood. It's also why it's led me to go back to the Institute for Integrative Nutrition and obtain additional certifications because there are true correlations. And the vagus nerve and the brain gut axis not only uses that acetylcholine and GABA to communicate, but they also use serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. So again, we're likening it to the emergency telephone line or that smoke detector. But here it's tricky. Is it a gut feeling or truly an emergency? And as we've said before, this is where we might need to stop, look, and listen before sounding the alarm or continuing with the behavior or activity. So let's pause, breathe, and make sure we need to actually be alarmed because there is a difference between stress and anxiety. So perhaps we get that gut feeling, but it may be worth pursuing a test to see if it's real or a perceived alarm. Yes, and that's the term that we use, which is called vagal tone. It indicates how well the vagus nerve is functioning. And since it's connected directly to the gut, it's a gut feeling. Remember, it's okay to have an acute response to stress, like maybe a gut feeling. We just don't want to be hanging out there all the time. That's what I often mentioned, that you can be in allostasis, which is running for the train, getting anxious before a presentation, or dodging a ball at Fenway Park. You just don't want to be hanging out in the stress-based response all the time because that's allostatic loading. But here, once again, which is why we combine the psychology, the biology, and the neurology of the body. Exactly. So now that we've discussed the psychology and biology, what about neurology? I think we touched on that briefly with the gut-brain axis, but can you say more? Yes, Nico. Once again, we see that in fight or flight that we've just learned that it's not just the amygdala firing off signals, but directly it's correlated with the vagus nerve and our gut. So if there is a real threat, our mind, thus brain, gets us out of danger. But let's take something that's trauma-based or fear-based we may want to consider a closer examination of what is real and what is perceived. Taking those deep breaths that inflate the diaphragm, which again will help with your heart rate variability. And your heart rate increases when you inhale and it decreases when you exhale. So extended exhales in particular support healthy vagal tone which is why when somebody says take a deep breath, you really should take a deep breath. And when we're stressed, we breathe shallow and therefore we stay stuck in fight or flight. So all that diaphragmatic breathing I mentioned every week is important because it slows your heart rate and it gives you a chance to think clearly. Again, going back to the ABCDE we discussed previously, looking at the A or activating event, B is our behavior to the event, 
C. The consequence as a result of our behavior. And lastly, D. Dispute the belief. That's right. And hopefully, with cognitive behavioral therapy, the E is the new emotional outcome. You have a great memory, Nico, and that is exactly right. So let's go back to gut feelings, right? So it's okay to have a gut feeling as long as we're not repeating them or repeating maladaptive or unproductive thoughts, behaviors, or feelings. A theme that keeps us stuck in a negative neural pattern will just continue to keep us stuck every time we reinforce it by repeating it. But that's also where we have the opportunity to bring about positive thoughts and emotions. There's a great book that's called The Biology of Belief by Dr. Bruce Lipton. He is a renowned cell biologist. I recommend it to anyone curious about changing how they see their life and live their life. He writes about the scientific discoveries of the biochemical effects of the brain's functioning and how all the cells in your body are affected by your thoughts. He also describes clearly with simple examples the precise molecular pathways through which this occurs. That's also called epigenetics, but of course, we'll talk about that at another time. In fact, we just need to look at our emotions and we want to look at how to regulate our emotions. And there is a link between all of these. And, you know, especially now where we're living as sort of like a collective species in our current environment. So, any get, I won't geek out again. <laughs> well, there truly is a science of how thoughts control our lives, which is what we discussed in terms of bringing positive thoughts, emotions, and experiences into negative or unpleasant ones, thereby neutralizing their effects. And it seems that affects us at a deep cellular level. Yes, negative thoughts create inflammation and positive thoughts decrease inflammation. Ourselves receive instructions by chemicals produced by the body, which is triggered by a thought. So good thoughts trigger oxytocin and dopamine, hormones and neurotransmitters that are important for self-regulation and social bonding. So thinking positively can help us to antidote stress and even help us thrive emotionally. And this relates back to our emotions and thoughts being regulated by facial expressions and our mood. And why it feels so difficult right now with social distancing and the wearing of masks. That's right, Nico. And our gut is so important. Sometimes our gut feelings are spot on and we feel our gut in our stomach or intestines. That's what you mentioned in the beginning. Well, guess what? They are truly inflamed. And so you do feel them. But if needed, also decreasing that inflammation through breathing and relaxing, and we can truly get our gut feelings in check. The other thing we need to look at is that awareness is the key to change. And five things that we can do every day just to keep that vagal tone would be to laugh, meditate, sing, visualize, and also feel socially connected, which is what we're all struggling with right now. Those are great things to keep in mind and actively work at doing, especially during these current times. And again, when looking at snap judgments or decisions, or basically our gut feelings, this is where mindfulness and meditation can help. Also, consuming foods that are in concert with our lifestyle, because when our food is balanced, we are balanced. And that puts our gut feelings in check. 
So we have a chance to relax and get into that parasympathetic nervous system where we are all amenable to change, making informed decisions and not ones based on a perceived threat. We tend to focus on the wrong thing there. And then again, it's because our minds think it's saving our lives, right? And we're basically doing this based on past experiences and potentially our gut. We're only trying to solve a problem of safety and belongingness. So how do we know if this gut feeling is a true stop sign or just a hurdle? Well, sometimes your mind will try and convince you that that person, goal, or even a setback represents a big stop sign. But it doesn't always mean that your gut is correct. Sometimes a setback is simply a detour. And we mentioned an intimidating person can ultimately give us a warm smile. But then again, I have worked with people that have articulated that they knew something was wrong immediately. And I remember specifically one client used the phrase, I could feel it like heat off a stone. That was powerful. So sometimes your first gut reaction may be correct. When it comes to safety, I tend to err on the side of caution. I can relate to that heat of a stone. That's how powerful my gut usually feels when guiding me. So when we are using the term gut feelings, are feelings and emotions different? <laughs> That's a great question, Nico. People do use these terms interchangeably. Emotions and feelings describe two different processes. Bodily driven ones are emotions and thinking driven ones are our feelings. Emotions are your subconscious reactions to, let's say, a physical experience, the information that comes from your environment and that maybe comes through your senses, which is why I always go back to my meditations trying to get the five senses engaged. Emotions are your brain's split-second response to a situation and they kick off a cascade of changes in your body. So let's review. Some bodily changes are perceptible to others like a flushed face or a facial expression or perspiring. Other ones are only perceptible to the person. So take your walking through a parking lot and you might hear a noise or you see some slight movement that catches your eye. Sometimes these perceptions are at the unconscious level. And again, the brain's detection is spot on and sends out the police and turns on a chain of chemical reactions. Then after you get the feelings. Feelings are your conscious reactions expressed in your thoughts. They are your mind's conscious interpretation of the environmental input affecting that input and affecting your body. Feelings are mental experiences of these bodily states. So feelings are not just reactions to the environment. As we have mentioned, we have memory beliefs and associations that also play an essential role in feelings. And they in turn bring about meaning to whatever you are experiencing. So that noise in the parking garage, the goosebumps and heart pounding, then the feeling that gives way to words like, I'm scared. Exactly. And then also another feeling may come up in your conscious mind about 
what could happen to you in that parking lot, right? There's the rumination. And that is a result of that shadow or noise, right? And emotions are associated in the body and feelings play out in the mind. So I'm going to say that again. Emotions are in the body and the feelings play out in our mind. It is simply to understand that mind-body connection that we often reference. They are, in fact, working together. Sometimes we need to run, and other times we need to stop running and think things through. It may be that we just walk, and it may be that we keep running. This is where we reference back to that phrase of reappraisal or reappraising a situation. A cognitive reappraisal helps to shrink that looming feeling down to its size when appropriate. It's basically how we interpret a situation. And that affects your emotions. And sometimes it's best to do this immediately when you first feel those emotions bubbling up. We are not suppressing them, mind you. We are not trying to forget them, ignore them, or shove them away. Because guess what? They will come right back up. So it's the ABCDE acronym again. Sometimes the threat is real or that gut feeling. But when we keep revisiting the same feeling or theme, it may be time to reappraise them. And over time, like we said last week, it removes that post-it note reminder to keep going back to the maladaptive thought or feeling. Exactly. You receive an honorary degree in psychology, Nico. <laughs> Um, often our fears are overblown and irrational. The late co-founder of cognitive behavioral therapy, Albert Ellis, borrowed the quote, so it's not just the things or events that disturb us, but the views we take on them. Meaning it isn't what happens or could happen that makes us feel so bad. It's our interpretation of it. And when we stop, look, and listen, we can tame our thoughts and feelings. But we do need to get out of that temper tantrum first, right? Our emotions are like fear, and sometimes our emotions are anger or anxiety, and they just sort of jump out of nowhere. And I often heard it when we were at Mass General Hospital at the Benson Henry Institute. They often reference to floating down in an inner tube going down a river and our emotions get us caught up in an eddy. Well, if you know what an eddy is, it's that little spinning part of the water, sometimes often near the shore or the banks. It's often where fish like to feed, but it actually is a little circular current. So when we get caught up in eddy, we're just spinning, 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 spinning. But here we can gently just unhook ourselves and get ourselves unstuck to keep floating back down the stream. I've always loved that analogy. Or I'll say to my clients, it's like clouds passing in front of you. Some are light and fluffy and you can just whisk them away. And some are dark and heavy and hailstorms. So remember, you are not your feelings, okay? They're happening to you. Sometimes we just need a little perspective and distance, observing what is happening as an opportunity as opposed to impulsively reacting to them. Then we can give ourselves a chance to have a more appropriate response. Just like your phrase, Colleen, 
The first darts are thrown at us, and the second darts we throw at ourselves. Or the aforementioned Albert Ellis quote, how we can't control what happens, but how we react to what happens. Well, thank you, Colleen. This has once again been informative and a fun conversation. Our brains are very complex, but we now have a roadmap to them, as you also say in your book, Prescription for Change. And we see, once again, the reason we bring the combination of psychology, biology, and neurology to enact life changes that stick. For more Restore Body Balance content, head over to our YouTube channel. Or for more information on the programs and to read the book on change, go to www.restorebodybalance.com.